0: Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Expected Value. It's our Johan Santana episode or Dolphins legend Dwight Stevenson episode, perhaps. This is the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world, and today we're talking with one of the top soccer tactics writers in the country. It's Matt Doyle, whom you may know as the armchair analyst at MLSsoccer.com, where Matt writes about all things MLS and U.S. national team. In our conversation, we'll talk about how he's feeling heading into this MLS season, the 29 teams, a new Apple TV deal. And he has exhaustive preview work over at MLSsoccer.com, so check that out, we'll talk about that. We'll go through his soccer story, how he got into soccer in the first place, how he got into soccer writing, tactics writing, how stats come into play with that, how he likes to combine stats with his tactical analysis, uh, numbers he likes to use, using the new second spectrum type of tracking data, what he does when his numbers and the eyes don't match up, what he thinks about expected goals, how he likes to use those, Other thoughts on soccer stats in general, advice for using numbers in writing, and for anyone looking to write about soccer stats, or maybe with an analytical bent. Then producer Sergio De La Estrella will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with MLSSoccer.com's Matt Doyle. Joined now on Expected Value by Matt Doyle, senior writer and analyst for MLSsoccer.com. You may know him better simply as the armchair analyst. Matt, welcome to the show. Let's just start. How are you feeling headed into this MLS season? We've got 29 teams. You've got exhaustive preview work on MLSsoccer.com. How are you holding up as we head into the season? Uh, exhaustive is a good word for
1: the, the amount of work that we've done, and, and, and hence I am pretty exhausted. Uh, when I started the job, there were 15 teams. Um, it was a different job back then. So you just the, the, the sheer volume of, uh, stuff you have to know about each team. The fact that MLS teams now are better at going down their roster and creating, um, relevant players from, uh, within or from some shrewd lower value purchases or from the draft. Um, it, it like it ends up being a full-time job even during the downtime or what should be the downtime in preseason. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty spent. And then obviously you throw the Apple stuff in on top of that. Um, and it's been a stressful, it's been a stressful buildup. Um, but at the same time, it's like the soccer starts and, you know, we had the, the preseason games streamed this past weekend and, um, that gave me a spark. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it, but it's, it's like, like, I just
0: try to keep my head above water at the same time. Yeah, no, I hadn't thought about it from the like roster standpoint, because obviously there's about double the number of teams, but there's also kind of double the number of relevant players on each team. So that's a, that's a good point. You mentioned the Apple thing. What's, what are you going to be doing for Apple? And we know MLS is, there's going to be a lot more content, both the team and a league level. So what's your role going to be in the new Apple stuff? it's pretty much the
1: same right now um you know i'm still writing my column i'm still on monday extra time there's some behind the scenes stuff that i'll probably be doing just because um you know i'm not a true data guy like i'm not a numbers cruncher but i i have a good grasp on what the data is and um, the stories it's telling and so i'm I'm going to have a, a role kind of just making sure that everybody understands uh what kind of pictures we can paint with it right then that's big like big picture broadly speaking making sure that the producers the other talent uh, you know other writers even understand what the data is saying and then on match nights it's still tbd um you know i I, i'll probably be doing some stuff in terms of like painting up tactical clips and um, making sure that the producers get the latest tracking data or you know, right up to the minute tracking data um, that they can use on the show. Um, I might be doing some camera facing stuff on Match Nights. So that's very much TBD at this point. Um, but it's like, it's not a finished product at right now you know like it's it's still very much in the launch stage and i think that we're, we're going to try to walk before we run and walking means making sure that the cameras work and the lights in the studio work and the four people who are on camera uh go out on the stream uh w- with no hitches and once we have that mastered i think there will be more room to experiment and i don't know maybe i'll end up in like a steve Cornacki at the board type
0: of role <laughs> roll up those sleeves get the khakis out Exactly. I mean, it's it's wild that you know, basically six months ago, like this network did not exist, and like it's a ton of work. So it's a good point. You guys, know, some of the extensive TV background. I know it, it will take time to just figure things out, and you know, fans won't be patient because they're fans, and that's okay. But you, you'll get there eventually.
1: Fans will be impatient. but I, I think fans like the, the feedback from this past weekend because. The production was good, right? There were no unnecessary close-ups on the games. And the the (laughs) picture, I mean, the 1080p, it was clear as glass. Um, So if you have those two things, like, MLS fans have been dying for that for so long. So I think that that's going to give whatever glitches happen, it's going to give us i think some grace in the eyes of, of the people who care about the league the most because you know they they understand um where you know the league has kind of been in the past and uh what it what it can look like now and uh what what it looks like um just in terms of being able to see the game itself it seems like it's going to be better and i think that is you know that is the trump card
0: It can't beat a high def camera one right correct correct absolutely yep. All right. Any uh, before we get into kind of your story, any favorite stat you've come across during all the preview work that kind of jumps out at you as we get ready for the season? I mean, the one that jumps out at me most is is just
1: the the Babello right now. So final third touches stat. He um, had more than a quarter of uh, Minnesota United's final third touches last year. Like we talk about heliocentric attacks. You know, from an NBA perspective, it's like Luka with the Mavericks, or like Harden, Rockets era Harden. Um, Like that's, that's basically what Minnesota United did last year with Raynaud. So, and I, I understand why when you have a genius uh, level chance creator like that, um, run the game through them. Like that's, that still works outside of like the the four or five biggest leagues in the world. That still works. Um, And it, it's a it's a tried and, and true and proven tactic in MLS, um, and but Bello Reynoso is currently in Argentina being fined by the league for not showing up to Minnesota United <laughs> preseason, and the people I've talked to at Minnesota United are done with him. They're just like they are they are just sick of this guy, um, and that seems like a really massive problem to me because they built the whole scheme around him to a degree that we like over the past 10 years, at least we have never seen anything like this. Any one player so central to a team's not just chance creation, but like passing sequence chance generation at like at the, at the Genesis at the very start of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the one that jumps out, man. Like, Minnesota might be in some trouble if they don't uh, come to a happy resolution here. Yeah, It seems
0: bad to lose your most important player, but right for the season sort of. Uh, okay. So let's get into your, you kind know, of your soccer story of sorts is everyone, especially, you know, people our age or so in the U S came to soccer all kinds of different ways and not just kind of, wasn't a traditional sport, obviously. So what, how did you get into soccer? I, I mean, from the beginning, before even the media world, just what was the allure of soccer? How did you find it or how did it find you?
1: yeah I, I was a kid i was uh, 12 or 13 i guess and um I, I think you're about the same age as me so you know in the 80s um god every time the olympics came around it, it was usa versus russia and and it was you know like it, it felt like the you know the entire world was at stake and you get that thrill and but by the, the late 80s with the you know the f- sort of starting of the fall of communism um but also the us having sort of established, um, that across most sports, we were superior to the USSR, um, that it like, I started looking for something else. And around that time, I, you know, Paul Caligiuri scored the goal against Trinidad. And, um, I, I had an uncle who, uh, explained, you know, he had been in the Navy, so he spent a lot of years in, in Europe and, um, was a, a a soccer ref um for like men's leagues in in virginia um and he explained to me he's like yeah we're, you know we're getting better but against most teams that you'll see in the world cup we're always going to be the underdog and i was like oh i like that i like that idea that it's not just watching u.s players u.s sport um expecting to be the best. It's like, okay, I'm going to go on a journey with this. And hopefully over the course of however many years I could watch the U S go from, you know, the 50th best team in the world, um, to the first, hopefully someday. Um, it, it just appealed to that sort of the nationalistic sort of thing, the itch that basically everybody had in the 80s and that you have as a kid and um, the, the underdog aspect of it. Um, so it, and then it coalesced at the 1990 World Cup because I, I watched those games with my uncle and he explained to me, he's like, you know, Mateus and, and Maradona, um, you're not gonna get those guys in the United States because we don't, we don't have a way to create, we don't, ha- we don't have a pathway to create those types of players. You need a league for that and like that was the moment i became an mls fan i became an mls fan <laughs> six years before mls existed because i i knew like i understood as a 12 or 13 year old like okay we we have to create this pathway and there's only one way to do that um and i so yeah i, I immediately became hooked because of that
0: so then as you you know, grew older career started, et cetera. How did you kind of transition or find soccer writing and writing about soccer as your outlet? Well, I
1: I was, um, I started as a sports writer when I was 14 or 15 years old with local newspaper. Um, You know, I, I went down uh, to the sports desk and I, I showed them some sample game stories I had written up of like a UConn basketball game watching off TV. And they started giving me um the assignments to cover local high school stuff and you know everything from jv girls volleyball to uh the local soccer teams and all that my dad would drive me to the, <laughs> to the you know to the games and sit in his car and uh, listen to his sports radio and i would i would go sit there for two and a half hours and watch the game and interview the coaches and then drive back this was before the you know, we all had home internet. And so the drive back to um, drive back to the newspaper and I would write it all up there. And um, because of just what I had discovered through the 90th world cup uh, and, and sort of voracious consumption of soccer America. And this is back when we had the Italian Syria on Rye um, was basically the only top level soccer. You could, I would watch that every weekend. I became the soccer expert at, you know, at the newspaper at age 15. So they would send me out to cover, you know, all the local high school games, boys and girls. Um, UConn was very good at that time. And I, you know, I ended up going to UConn, but I, um, I was a UConn all sports fan from the time I was seven years old. Um, so that was an an entryway as well. And then by the time, I got to UConn as a student. I just walked into the student newspaper and got the beat covering men's and women's soccer.
0: So as you know, your career developed, the tactics and data to a different extent kind of became your area of expertise. Where did that, how did that evolve for you?
1: It was, I mean, it was always the most interesting thing in, in the game to me. Is figuring out how all the moving parts work and all the moving pieces work, and um, through all the reading I did and, and all the, the watching I did and all the talking to, um, you know, coaches and uh, other journalists and uh, you know, taking some classes, none of that I felt was explained adequately. It, a lot of it was like vibes and luck. And to be fair vibes and luck <laughs> right. yeah. play even in the most tactically sound teams in the world vibes and luck still play mm-hmm. um, an incredibly outsized role in our game um, but what really happened was i want to say around 2003-4 um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, we had the rise of the basket bloggers guys who were really doing this for the nba and I saw that and I thought, ooh, I think I want to do that. And at the same time, I, I met my wife who um, has a cinema studies degree and, and she, she basically does that with film and TV. She's like, here are the moving parts of the film. Here's how it, Here's how it works. And I was like, oh, I can do that for soccer. And so those two influences sort of coalesced while I was very unemployed in New York city and watching way too much MLS. Um, and I just, you know, I ended up, I've always had a voice as a writer. And so combining my voice with that sort of analytical bent, um, I kind of realized that there was a niche that I could hit. Um, and I hit it and and then I, you know, I got my big break in 2010 when Greg Lawless hired me at
0: MLSsoccer.com and that's kind of how it happened. So I guess about that same time you got hired is really kind of when soccer data became, started to become more available, you know, stuff beyond your basic goals and assists and whatever else, you know, somebody might be counting uh, during a game. How did that come into play? How do you start incorporating that into your writing as it becomes more available? I mean, just having the Opta um, partnership, like
1: that, happened basically the day that I walked in the door. Um, and so, you know, the people who had you know, negotiated the deal for that partnership were like, here's all this data, you should figure out a way to use it in your columns." Okay. I'll figure out a way to use it. And it, it, it was, you know, to bring it back, it was very similar to what the basket bloggers were all doing. Um, so I was like, I, yeah, I can, I can figure out a way to do this. And, um, so it was like, it was mandated to a degree, but it was also like this will help me explain the game better. This will this will help me do my job better. Um, and then at the same time, I became well, maybe like six months later, I became really good friends uh, with Devin pluler who uh, I'm sure you know. He 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 worked at Opta for a couple of years. He uh, ended up going to Toronto's front office in 2014 or so, um, and he's now you know MLSE. The stats guru across multiple sports, but the the really advanced stuff that he did, um, I would I would never be able to do. But I felt like he was sequencing the soccer genome, so we would we <laughs> would talk every day about like what is the best way to get at this sequence of play or this overall pattern that we're seeing in the game. We I mean, God, go back on our. It's not even Slack, we were using Skype back then to to chat. Go back through those logs, and and you'll find the genesis a lot of I think of a lot of the the cutting edge stuff that is maybe just hitting the public sphere now. Um, so it was it was a lot of like right time, right place, um, but it was also I, I had sort of a predilection for wanting to know about that stuff if not necessarily the talent to figure it out on my own
0: yeah yeah you mentioned that you realized that the data could help you and inform slash support what you're doing in your process now how do you go about finding the data whether you're you're coming to asking a question or starting with it and, and going from there how do you go about using it and combining it with the tactical writing it
1: it depends i mean the 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 ideal way is like i've watched the game really closely and i have some ideas of what i've seen um and then i start looking through the data be it events or tracking to piece it all together or to get a clearer picture or even to, to debunk what i think i've seen and when that happens um You know it calls for a second look because i still don't always trust the data i I think a lot of this you know a lot of this stuff can be misleading like dribbles is a very misleading stat in my opinion
0: everything can be noisy in small samples especially
1: yeah um but like that that is the ideal way to to use it um sometimes though it's just there's so much happening um you know we're up to 14 games a weekend sometimes you're like i i don't know what to say about this game um, and you just you go through and you find the one big number and you're like okay I'm gonna see if I could build a story around this one big number uh, because it obviously means something uh, and let's hope that I'm right about what it field tilt here's a good one for NYCFC field tilt Keaton Parks is on the field they're they've tilted the field you know 70% now because Keaton Parks is out there okay there's my story like I, I didn't I wasn't able to watch the game with an eagle eye because there were four other games on at the same time. But hey, he's back, he's healthy, and now they're living in in the opponent's box. Like th- this is a very clear correlation. Um, so it again, ideally, it's it's the analysis and then giving the numbers a home within that context. But sometimes it's completely completely reversed. Yeah.
0: So what do you you, you reference this? But what do you do when you know? you go to you watch the game you think x and you look at the numbers and it's something completely different how do you approach that trying to reconcile those two things which may seem to be opposites it
1: depends on how much time i have so sometimes you know i'll just ignore it entirely if i'm if i'm really (laughs) if i'm really really on a crunch and like i said like i still trust the eye test in a lot of ways more than i necessarily trust the numbers um not across the board, but on certain things. Um, but in, sometimes they'll be like, send a note to the the data providers and be like, "Look, guys, I like this didn't match up. How you know? Can you go over this? Can you? Are are we sure that this is correct?" Um, and other times, you look at the numbers. You, you have time to go back to watch, and watch it and say, "Like, yeah, my eyes were lying to me. My memory um, was was lying to me." And then you you sort of. Reframe your opinion and to be honest, that's probably the one that happens uh, Most often though. I don't I don't always
0: love to admit that. Yeah, I, I mean because we always you know We remember the whatever the two good things that a player does and maybe we miss the six bad things or vice versa
2: Yeah,
1: well, and that's what makes it tough to try to do this job um, in a public sphere especially on social media because what? Yeah right. <laughs> like goals, goals really skew uh, people's perception of how the game happened. Um, like the there's a, a story out today by by Henry Bushnell on, on Yahoo. He has an interview with Ernie Stewart, and Ernie says something to the effect of, you know, if you were a neutral watching the U.S. game versus the Netherlands in the the round of 16 um and you didn't see the goals you would be absolutely convinced that the u.s were the better team and that uh, they were the ones in control of the game and it's like yeah i completely agree with that um but that's not a conversation that people are really able to have i want to say people a lot of fans are not able to have that conversation because they can't wrap their heads Around the the the
0: thought yeah, I mean it happened last night in this u.s. Women against japan, you know, japan outplayed the u.s. For most of the game but Morgan and swanson connect for one goal and u.s. Hangs on wins one nil uh, So, you know, everyone's relatively happy though. They probably could have should have Lost or gotten a draw out of it
1: Yeah, and, and it's like it, it's it's actually a data point that is like more concerning because it just keeps being more of the same for, for the women where they just don't, they don't look as in control of games as they should. And they're, you're reliant upon a moment of magic and like, okay, but most games are not won that way. Right. Um, And you want to, you want to create the baseline level of performance um, where you're, you're, Giving yourself larger margins so that it doesn't take a moment of magic; it just takes you executing.
0: You've referenced the this is the second spectrum tracking data, which goes you know is tracking all the players on the field at all times, not just on the ball events. Uh, what have you learned from that the past few years as it's become available? What do you like to pull from that and, and use?
1: I think the the best thing that it's been uh, that, that it's provided has been. Um, the, the ability to understand with more clarity where and how teams are generating their chances. Um, you know, because and, and, we could all see that, uh, you know, Nashville plays a deep block, and they like to get Hani Mukhtar out on the run, you know, counterattacking team, set-piece team and all that. But to, to be able to put numbers to that, to be able to put numbers to... Um, a team like Montreal who their whole structure is set up or was set up under, under Wilfred Nancy to control the pitch and not allow cheap counterattacking goals and um, teams like NYCFC who uh, really use possession in um, a strategic way to spread the field and create these channels like set like, I'm not going to say that the tracking data revealed like a whole you know n- new world of what soccer looks like, but it made it easier to understand and explain the things that I think we all knew we were seeing
0: how do you approach expected goals? I mean, it's kind of the i don't know which is a staple by now of your advanced stats in soccer. how do you approach uh, using those numbers, which I mean as we know can be misleading can also be insightful. It's all in these cases How do you approach using that? Uh,
1: I? I generally try to be um, I, I I really do try to, to 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 abide by best practices, which is like don't start really using them until uh, you get an eight-game sample size, right? Because that's when it gets predictive over the course of a full season. Um, uh, but it's it's tough. It's tough because it's it is even though it can be misleading over the course of one game, it can also be really really useful. We saw that the other night in, in preseason, when you know New England beat Orlando
0: that's two one. Orlando game,
1: yeah 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 like Petrovic just, stood on his head yeah and like okay like expected goals I think kind of told an accurate story in that game a game where it didn't tell an accurate story is um, the U.S. draw versus Wales first game uh, of the World Cup right because right? Mm-hmm. it was U.S. went up 1-0 better team Wales make a sub at the half they get that big tronco center forward up there and they start playing long ball um, and it pushes the U.S. back, but the U.S. had a million counterattacking chances in the second half. Like, time after time after time, it was Pulisic or Aronson getting on the ball in space with runners against a ragged back line. Um, and that is, to me, that is exactly how you want to play when you're one nil up. You want to get your best players on space against a backpedaling defense. These guys sh- should have annihilated that, but they weren't even generating shots off of it. Like if you, I feel it, it like, so expected goal said, yeah, it was an even game at the end. It's like, no, that wasn't even. And the expected goal say it was the scoreline says it was, but like, if you look at that game, the U S should have been up three nil before Wales had, um, you know, anything even up- close to matt turner's goal it was just the the final ball wasn't there or the pass before the pass wasn't there so that i mean that leads to other sort of more advanced metrics like the game flow stuff which is where the tracking data can really help because game flow um which some of it is based on events some of it's based off tracking um, like if if game flow sees you know, a 3v3 with the U.S. number 10 in 15 yards of space and a runner to the right and a center forward dragging the center back out, it's going to recognize that that is a really advantageous position and it's going to um, show that in terms of the data it it spits out. So that is how single game expected goals
0: can can kind of tell a lie. Um, Yeah. 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 Not perfect. Better than, often better than the shots and shots on goal, but not perfect Agreed. either. Um, any stat, soccer stats or data that you see that you're, maybe you're not a fan of, or you see misused frequently.
1: Well, I, I already referenced dribbles, which is a tough one. Um, it, that, I mean, expected goals is the one that is, is most often misused. Um, though, you know, again, I am a fan of it. I, I do think it is a a, a, a big improvement. Um, we all know that possession is, you know, badly misused and misunderstood, because um, commentators will always talk about when the team with sixty percent possession is losing the game. Um, but if you look at the data over the course of multiple years now, across multiple leagues, um, teams. Like there's a pretty good correlation between having the ball uh, and being a good team. Like teams with higher possess- possession percentages tend to be better than teams that don't have as much possession. But you don't hear as much about that uh, on broadcast. So those are those are ones that jump out at me. And part of it is like we like broadcasts and and most writers and even analysts aren't using the the super advanced data yet. You know, expected goals is about the tip of the iceberg for them and and they haven't gone much beyond that and i understand why it's a tough thing to explain a lot of the, the the
0: cutting edge stuff is very tough to explain to um, right. a, a casual audience yeah especially in you know 10 or 15 seconds um yeah something you wish anything you wish you had a number for that maybe isn't out there or isn't super public that you'd like to be able to quantify on the soccer field oh, that's a good question um
1: you know <laughs> It's probably out there, um, but I, I, I want some sort of like rubric that is like field tilt times um, percentage of chances created that are really good chances times percentage of um, opposing counterattacks that or opposing counterattack. Um, opportunities that are thwarted by good rest defense. If there is a way you could combine all of that into one, uh, into one stat. um, And I think that there's probably, you know, the American soccer analysis guys would probably say like, that's what we're doing. Um, Yeah. Like that is, that is something that I think would go a long way towards explaining what I was just saying about, Possession about why it's valuable and where it's valuable and how it's valuable on both sides of the ball.
0: Yeah, so almost a almost an efficiency metric of sorts is of how good yeah. are you with the ball and not both doing things and not giving up things to the opponent. That kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, so, what advice or kind of what's your approach? What advice do you have for using these numbers in writing? Because obviously, you know, we've all read things that are too many numbers. I'm sure I've written things that have too many numbers and. they're kind of, I don't know, dull or hard to digest because there's just so much. What advice do you have when approaching using data, using numbers in your writing? Uh, I mean, too many, like
1: avoid using too many numbers is, (laughs) is a good place to start. Um, You know, tell the, like the writing has to be able to stand on its own. You you have to you know, if you start listing numbers first, you'll lose most of your readers It's your job as as the analyst to to give the numbers a home Within what I would consider to be like understandable context Um, And then use the numbers as a way of illuminating what you're trying to say Uh, Like that is that is job one if you're trying to write for fun Um, if you're you know an analyst Doing behind the scenes work, trying to explain it to a coach, um, that might even be more important because coaches are pretty notoriously skeptical of, of advanced data. So uh, you'll have to figure out how to present it in a way that is digestible, and then uh, help them figure out a way that in which it's applicable.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's what Devin has said that at conferences before. You know, oh, tell yeah. them the story. Don't even use the numbers. Just tell them that you know, this team is. Attacking heavily down the left side don't bother telling them that what percent of their touches were in the attacking third on that side just Or another show them, you know, two video clips or something. Yeah, you have to you have to expl- you have to speak
1: their language Really? Like you, you can't like not like most people are not going to have the background to Understand what you're saying if you just jump in with the it doesn't even have to be high-level stuff But we with with if you just jump in with the data not even high level data. If you just jump in with the data,
0: most people are just going to tune right out. Yeah. Yeah. And what advice for anyone who wants to, you know, they're into soccer, you know, whether it's a student or someone looking to, you know, break in the field or something, they're into soccer. They want to write about soccer tactics stats. Uh, where do you suggest somebody get started in something like that? At, at this point, I, I, like, I don't know.
1: <laughs> you know, it is, like, it's, it's a it's, lot. Yeah. yeah, like it's it, I, I, like I don't know how I don't know what the best place to start is with this. Maybe just go with the box scores and because there's a ton of useful data still in box scores um, and, and go from that. Find the publicly facing stuff. FB Ref, I know has a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, American Soccer Analysis has a bunch of stuff as well. See what you can dig around in, in there. Um, and then while you're doing that, um, make sure you make plans to go into a more lucrative career instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have, have a backup plan, sort of. Yes. Have a primary plan. Have right. this
0: be be <laughs> your hobby. Be the yeah. backup plan, right? Well, well, we're going to drag people into the industry now, just like that. So, uh, okay, let me, let me wrap things up with our playing favorite segment where we just like to rip through a number of, of your favorites. So what is your favorite number, your lucky number, and why?
1: Uh, 38, because it, uh, it was my dad's favorite number. Um, and so now I probably have to change all my passwords. I shouldn't have said that out loud. That's right. No, Who's your uh,
0: favorite athlete as a kid, any sport?
1: Uh, it, was, it was Cliff Robinson. Yukon basketball yeah Yukon basketball guy um and larry bird i mean as i grew up in new england in the 80s and i've been
0: a hoops head my entire life so did you wear a headband because of cliff robinson
1: i did not ah. i did not but in, in retrospect i guess i should have
0: yeah you have a favorite nerdy thing that you track whether it's you know something you do or something you, like keep an eye on or whatever
1: uh i, I have a couple of things um one is just the, the the drought in california i i lived in berkeley for 7 years for this and like it was beautiful weather and there was no rain the entire time turns out it was like once in a 2000 year drought probably like not even probably it's 1000% from because of climate change um, and By the time we left, we had started getting the really bad wildfires. So I I track the drought status. I track uh, the status of California snowpack um, because the usage for that, um, you know, that's basically California's largest reservoir, melts off during uh, spring, summer and into fall. And then um, I track the the reservoir status out there um, throughout the West, and it's really Uh, kind of terrifying these days and because of that, I've also started, um, you know, I go on the treadmill and I, and I watch videos about like future clean energy tech. (laughs) So I could tell you about perovskite solar cells and gyroscopic geothermal, uh, advanced geothermal drilling and all that, because it's like, oh man, we, we really have the, we really have what we need to solve most of this stuff. We just haven't had the political will to uh, to enact it. So yeah, that's it's it's a little grim, but like that, yeah, that's that's the stuff that All I try. Right, we'll have to do another
0: pod on advanced geothermal drilling and, and see how see how that one. goes. It's very exciting, Paul. It's very <laughs> exciting. All right. All right. Speaking of things we could do other pods on, uh, you and I are both huge fans of the TV show Firefly. Do you have a what's your favorite Firefly episode?
1: Well, it, I think everybody's favorite is either. Um, Objects in space are out of gas, so yeah. like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna consider either of those, um, just because they're the the obvious answers. Um, I'll I'll say um, our Mrs. Reynolds, uh, Saffron is just one of the she's one of the greatest characters in TV history, like just such yeah. a great villain. Um, like she like it, it, that's the one if I were to go back um, and watch one over and over again, which I. Do. Um that's the one.
0: Yeah. No, I, I usually say out of gas is my favorite. And our Mrs. Reynolds or uh, the other one with her trash, I think it's called. Those are the most yeah. fun. Like it's just yeah. it's just a good time. So yeah, those are the ones I'll throw on when I just want to have fun for an hour. Uh finally, do you have a favorite how did I get here type of moment? You're like, all right, this has brought me to a pretty cool place. You can kind of soak in. Uh this is this is a cool thing that I've come to.
1: Uh yeah, I think it was a twenty 2012- twelve Super Draft, um, not Super Draft, sorry, Combine, um, down when it was held in Fort Lauderdale every year. Um, And that was, it doesn't happen anymore, um, but that was like um, annual like Woodstock for MLS. Right, everyone's down there. Yeah, like everyone was down there. Um, it wasn't well, you know, it wasn't publicized. So people were, um, speaking freely, drinking freely. Uh, there were a lot of late nights, uh, a, a lot of fun times at the bar. You hear every, every, uh, rumor, every whisper, every true story, uh, a lot of untrue stories as well um you see things that you shouldn't see you learn the stuff that you shouldn't learn uh that like that was my my first time experiencing that was, was after being a i'd been a fan of the league for 15 years already at that point so you've heard but like you don't know it until you right. until you get to live it that was the one yeah yeah you learn a lot late night at the bar whether you should be learning yeah. anything or not but the information starts that? flowing you remember that place, um, it was called Bahia. It was across from, it was across the street, across from, uh, was it, A1A in, in Fort Lauderdale from the hotel where everybody stayed at for, mm-hmm. for the combine. They had like the best fish tacos I've ever had in my entire <laughs> life. And they had this like local Miami pilsner and you would just sit there and it was a deck overlooking one of the canals um you know because it's not it wasn't ocean facing and just sit there having beer after beer after beer watching everybody cycle through this room that that restaurant sadly is gone and a part of me died when they (laughs) uh, when they they bulldoze that
0: to put up a new condo building Uh the glory days or something all right that's a good story to end with so matt doyle senior writer and analyst for mlssoccer.com thanks for joining us here on expected value back in the true media studios i'm paul carr thanks again to matt doyle for joining us on the show follow him on twitter at matt doyle 76 again check out his season preview work to get you ready for the MLS season. You can find links to that on MLSsoccer.com in our show notes. I'm joined now by producer Sergio de la Esprilla from down in the land of Inter Miami and the beautiful black and pink new kits that they have. Sergio, hello. What did you uh, take away from the conversation with Matt?
2: Well, first, um, I'm so glad to announce here exclusively on Expected Value that I will be at Inter Fort Lauderdale, I mean, Inter Miami's um, <laughs> home opener on Saturday against Montreal. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, hats off to the entire Adidas and MLS kit teams across the the league. All the jerseys are ex- exquisitely beautiful. Yeah, I will be purchasing better. that black one uh, away jersey at some point this season. It's good, it's that so Inter good. Miami so kit. Miami, it is. It, it feels like us. It, it's great. I love yeah. when I love when the kits or jerseys or you know in any sport really reflect the city and the location right. they're from and I just love that that is the most that apart from you know the original Miami Heat Miami Vice jerseys those <laughs> are the like it, it feels like us so I'm very happy about right.
0: that when when no other team could wear that jersey like I'm in Kansas City Sporting Kansas City could not wear a pink jersey or a black and pink jersey uh, when almost no other team could get away with it not even get away with it. It just doesn't go with the the general vibe of the city. Yeah. That's when you got a good one. And exactly. Miami finally got the pinks right. The black and pink looks exquisite as well.
2: When they when they finally build that stadium in in actually Miami proper and not for full disclosure, the Inner Miami stadium is quite literally down the street from my house. I live in Broward County. It's a 10-minute, 15-minute drive for me. Like it is nowhere near Miami, but when they do build the permanent stadium in a few years, Very excited Mm -hmm. for that color scheme and to pop and all that stuff. So, yeah. Um, But back to Doyle.
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. What else did you take away from that conversation?
2: Great conversation. They say, don't meet your heroes. But in this case, I'm very glad that I did. Full disclosure again. um, No, don't tell him. Don't tell him. um, Matt Matt Doyle (laughs) is one of the reasons that I uh, made the switch from my theater career to, you know, try to go into work in sports and sports journalism, sports data and stuff. Um, you know, I used to read armchair. I still read armchair Analyst almost every week. Um, and so it was very humbling and, and it was a great moment for me to be able to listen to you guys talk about, you know, data in sports and and specifically his journey. I loved a couple of things. Mostly I really liked how he would talk about how sometimes the numbers don't always match up with kind of what he was watching with the eye test and mm-hmm he would kind of like say, hey, is this okay? And sometimes he would rewatch the games and be like, oh no, now that I have that information on, on second viewing, those numbers actually do reflect the game in a way that I didn't see the first time. And I think that that's, that's a, a really great and relatable experience to all of us. Now, not everyone has access to the numbers like Doyle or you and I have, um, but I know selfishly, I mean, <laughs> I'd be saying I was lying if I wasn't watching some games and knowing that I have access to the true media site. Would kind of pop in and be like, "Hey, I wonder how this is," you know, just out of curiosity. And so, it's 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 very, it was cool to see and very relatable that it, you know, that's the, someone at the highest level of soccer writing in this country, which I believe Doyle is the the gold standard of soccer writing in the United States. Um, I, I feel like, you know, it's 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 okay, cool. I'm doing something right in terms of how I approach watching a game with the numbers in mind, with the different types of um, analytical kind of stories that the numbers can give you which can then double check in are my eyes working as well so I like that and then I also loved um as a as an artist as a as a theater major as someone who loved improv luck and vibes um that is something (laughs) that doesn't it's a thing and it's not just in soccer luck and vibes was sometimes my mentality on the stage now that I'm removed from that I can kind of admit that but luck and vibes is a real thing in life and Sometimes it is what it is, you know, sometimes you just have to go out there and see if it works, get lucky, have a great attitude, and hopefully it pans out. And for, um, you know, to, 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 for someone who's watched more MLS games than I can even, than I'll ever forget, it, knowing that that is something that he's also picked up on when watching games is is fascinating. So those are kind of my two big takeaways from from the yeah. conversation.
0: Okay, I got a couple things to say to both those things Uh, first the luck and vibes i mean i'm sure we've talked about this before but it's so true in soccer even more than any other sports because it's just a it's the math of being a low-scoring game i mean i'll point to uh for example arsenal aston villa this weekend leon bailey puts a shot off the crossbar that i think would have put villa up by two and probably ended that game instead arsenal comes back and they win when a Jorginho shot goes off the crossbar off the keeper and in like these are the weird bounces That, you know, and suddenly Arsenal's got the fortitude of a champion instead of, uh, you know, choking and they can't handle the pressure. And, you know, there's like a total of six inches that define that thing. So there's things like that we're never going to be able to strip out of soccer. Uh, The vibes thing, I think, I mean, this comes into play a lot like talking World Cup rosters, especially toward the end. Like, is the 26th or 23rd person, you know, was Christian Roldan on the team for his versatility? I don't think he played in the whole tournament but by all accounts, he's a really good teammate and go with the vibes counts for something. I don't know what I can't quantify Listen, it, unfortunately, you, but it's a thing. You
2: need a, you need a personality guy on that roster to just keep it together. Roster building is about so much more than who are the best players on the team, right? Yes. That's probably your, your first 17 or 18 guys have a realistic and legitimate chance at playing and being impactful on the field. But if you're not going to, especially now that they expand to the roster to 26, if, it spots 24, 20, 25, and 26, it, honestly, if if Weston McKinney's brother is the vibe <laughs> curator, I, I'm fine with having McKinney's brother as the vibe curator. You know what? That man may not be a professional athlete, but if he's going to make that room be yeah. much more exciting and, and easier for the guys playing, I have no problem with him being the 26th guy on the roster. You know what I mean?
0: Uh, I'm going to send you to go apply to be the U.S. Soccer Vibes coordinator now. Yeah, that's, see, see yes, if we get that's that actually... Done. Uh, yes, so I, yeah, was, I regret yeah.
2: to inform you. I'm leaving True Media to be the U.S. Soccer Vibes coordinator. That's what's that's happening. Acceptable. We'll <laughs> let that go. That,
0: you know, it, it pains me as a numbers guy to say that, but there, it's something that's, you know, and here, especially in the NBA, you're trying to quantify chemistry by, you know, different units on the court, and it's, it's – it's, there's just some stuff you can't, unfortunately – totally quantify you can try to see how it and tease out how it plays out on the court but it's just not really a thing yet um the other thing just talking about the eye test and numbers again, i'm sure i've referenced this here on the pod before it's one of the kind of famous analytics quotes it comes from dean oliver who's the godfather of basketball analytics used to work here at true media but the quote is you know your eyes can watch a game better than the numbers can however numbers see all the games And it was to to Matt's point about, you know, there's 14 MLS games in a weekend. He obviously cannot watch them all, but the numbers can give you some sense of what that is. Uh, And the same thing, even within a single game, we talked about, you know, I can watch, there's 22 players on the field. I can't watch them all at once, especially if I'm on TV. I can't even see them all, all the time. Uh, So I can see some things, but even then your brain tricks you into remembering good things and not bad things or vice versa. And... The numbers watch the whole game. You can watch a game or at least parts of a game better than the numbers can, but the numbers watch the whole game, and they watch all the games. That's why it's so valuable for scouting purposes. You don't have to watch every single game in the Belgium 2nd Division if that's what you're scouting. The numbers can give you a shortcut to get to a certain place or you know, take what some scouts say and, and help digest that and process it and expedite it for. Uh, recruiting purposes, whatever. And it saves everyone time, it saves everyone money, which is a good thing. So, I mean, this is where a lot of the value comes in, especially for clubs and teams and for media too. Numbers watch all the games. uh, They give you a sense of what happened. Is it a complete picture? Not necessarily, but it's a more complete picture in a minute than you can get from watching a couple of highlights.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And listen, I I think this could be the thesis of expected value, um what I'll call in in my era of expected value since I've come on, but we've we've said this a thousand times and we're gonna say it a thousand more times. The the best way that you can use sports data is when you marry it with um, you know, watching the game and stuff. It it's it's intended to be a tool and not a crutch. Like we we need to use this information as a way to, like what Doyle said, like, are we you know, checking, hey, I had this one idea when I saw the game, the numbers are saying this, I could be wrong. But also let me use those numbers across the eight or nine games that I couldn't sit down and watch 100% over the weekend. And let me use those numbers to go back and influence how I can watch rewatch the game because I'm sure yes, Doyle goes back and watches all those games afterwards. But in the moment, obviously can't do that. So um, they're very necessary. And it's it's one of the reasons why I like kind of what we do here because at true media, because we're able to provide that information, we're able to, to aid teams and our media clients and, and all, everyone else with, um, with how they can digest their sport, you know, whether it's baseball, soccer, um, you know, anything else that we're doing football. So I, I just, I think that that's, again, want to emphasize that is kind of our <laughs> here and expected value. Um, our like thesis statement, I guess is the easiest yeah. way I could put it, you know? Yep. For sure. For sure.
0: All right, thanks, Sergio. Thanks again to Matt Doyle for joining us on the show. As always, please subscribe, rate, review the show wherever you get podcasts. Help spread the word, keep the pod going. Uh, While you're doing that, check our archives. We have over 50 episodes, plenty of soccer guests that include Tom Worvel, who's now a data scientist at RB Leipzig, Mike Goodman, who's a soccer editor for CBS, even Greg Berhalter, former, maybe future, who knows, U.S. head coach. We'll see where that goes. And follow us on Twitter, at True Media Sports, T-R-U Media Sports where we showcase how teams and media are using our analytics product. On behalf of Sergio de la Estrella and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.